Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We run courses and we specialize in helping clinicians apply a BPS approach to their clinical practice. So we have mentorship online and both one-on-one as well as group mentoring options. All the info is on our website, tkex.org. We've also got some in-person courses, including hosting Lars Avamarie in at the time that this podcast is published just over six weeks so check it all out on our website and join in on our discussion group on facebook so i've got a special guest today i've been following cooney for a while on the gram and really really value his his posts and the way that he values uh, a science-based and evidence-based approach um, and surprised that he was only a new grad so Thank you very much, Cooney, for all the efforts that you've been putting in and you've been sharing. I definitely respect the time and energy it takes for all those posts and keen to dive into a bit of your story and, and some of the, the challenges in, in all the work that you do to, to battle some of the misinformation that's out there. So thanks for joining us, first and foremost. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Mate, the infamous question made famous by... Peter O'Sullivan, what's your story? <laughs> Love that question. Use it all the time now. So my story, um, so I just graduated from uh, my doctor in PT back in May. Uh, so a few months ago. And it's uh, I grew up in uh, New Jersey. So I'm a New Jersey resident. I'm about 15, 20 minutes away from New York City. Um, so most people should be familiar with uh, that landmark. And um, I grew up... Um, I was always into working out and movement. That's like the one thing that that always got me into uh, um, to where I am today is my love for exercise and my love for movement. And growing up in high school when I was like 15 years old, so it was about like 16 years ago. I'm 31 now. Um, I was really a, I was not just into the doing part of working out. I was also into the the knowledge aspect. I love reading. So as a 15 year old kid, I, I you know I read like Arnold's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding. It's like 800 page encyclopedia. And, uh, you know, I got really involved in forums too. So I was on like bodybuilding forums. Um, I followed like Lane Orton back in the day. Um, and I got, uh, into, into reading all these different guys, um, from back then, like, you know, Mike Boyle, Greg Cook, uh, Eric Cressy, Ripito, Gambetta. So I grew up with a lot of these kind of old school, um, old school coaches. And I also became a personal trainer at one point, um, and there's one thing that that always stuck with me is that I was always into wanting to learn more and more. I was never like quite satisfied and I was always questioning my own beliefs. Um, and so, you know, finally I came to a point where I found the evidence-based crew. So I found guys like Alan Aragon and Brett Contreras um, and Brad Schoenfeld. Um, but I still always felt limited, especially because as a trainer, you know, we're not allowed to work with pain and injury or we're very limited in our scope. And uh, I kind of avoided PT or physio for a long time because I uh, I didn't want to work with injured people. I was always injured growing up playing sports. Um, but then I, I started to really fall in love with uh, the idea of like helping people with something that's meaningful to them. Uh, besides just helping people add an inch to the bicep or helping them get in shape. I think I want to do something more uh, meaningful and want to expand my knowledge because I felt like there was, I was just avoiding so much knowledge. Um, and that's, uh, you know, I wanted to be at the, the peak, uh, peak of knowledge. And I, I thought at that time, at least uh, physiotherapy was a, was a good way to expand that. Um, so I finally decided to go to PT school or uh, physio school here in the States. Um, and then, you know, one thing led to another. I am here where I am today. I started changing the people I, I read from. You know, I, I used to follow guys like Squat U, um, so I, I feel like I've gone through a lot of different people in terms of who I've, I follow, who I've kind of, you know, quote, unquote, been mentored underneath by just reading their information. And now I feel a lot more independent with uh, with where I'm at now. That's cool. It's the, the journey of curiosity and always wanting to learn and always wanting to, to grow and take that next step. And then mm -hmm. there's so much incredibly meaningful work when working with with injuries and pain that may not have um i guess on the surface level might not really appear but but once you dive into it it's so much i feel more satisfying than just working on general 
fitness goals. It's more about the person's life and their livelihoods and their quality of life. And, mm -hmm. and so PT was a way for you to, to access that and that, that also uh, that scope of practice to, yeah. to reach out mm -hmm. to them. Yeah, it's uh, definitely more satisfying for me. And nothing wrong for people who just want to stick with with that. You know, if you if you like training, just um, without having to work with individuals who are experiencing pain or disability. You know, that's there's nothing wrong with that. And, and I think sometimes I, I kind of miss that because it felt a lot more simple. But now working with pain and injuries, it's not so simple. There's um almost like a, a continuum that I've I've seen where it's the trainings on one side and rehab is on the other yeah. side, but it's still the same kind of continuum. How, how do you mm -hmm. make sense of that from your personal training days to, to now um, the, mm -hmm. the kind of continuum of, of exercise based rehab for those in pain and injuries on one side and gen pop on the other? Mm -hmm. that's, that's a good question. Um, and that's, that's something I thought of as a trainer. I saw it as this continuum and I've, I recognize that I was only on one part of the continuum and, you know, not, not being a physio, I, I completely missed out on the other side. And what I saw as the other side of the continuum was so much bigger, so much encapsulated, so much more information. Um, but how I see, it, I, I still see it very similarly. And I feel um, a lot of practitioners could actually see it more on a very similar scale um, where it's like, almost like some people treat it as they're like just two distinct things that don't mesh well. But really, I think, um, when you're, when you're doing rehab, right, it doesn't look too different than, you know, how it is with like training a, a client, you know, a personal training client. Um, I'm at a clinic right now, which I'm lucky to be at, uh, it's called Maven Center. So shout out to uh, Maven Center. And I just uh, started working there in June. So I, I started working right out of, uh, graduation and, uh, you know, what, what I really respect and appreciate there is that it's, it's a similar approach, you know, it's, it's a half, a uh, half fitness business, half a uh, rehab business, and it's all under one same roof. So a lot of our patients, they're also a fitness member uh, of our, of our gym. Um, or sometimes, you know, patients will eventually join the fitness side because they still see the classes on their side. They'll, they'll be interested and then they just join or, you know, people from the fitness membership side, you know, they get, aches and pains um, or injuries and they come on over to the patient side so it's, it's cool and there some of the stuff that we do together isn't too different between but the approach is so different you know um, you know you, you get lots of criticisms about rehab um, especially more the active based rehab where it's like it's not any different than personal training um, but you know being on both sides is still a very very big difference and the patients there they, they know too when they're when they're on the clinical side, they notice a big difference with uh, the approach. Um, so even though it's similar, it's very similar principles. I think um, there's still the their approach of dealing with with a patient or dealing with a client is, is still really different. Yeah, meeting them at different parts of that continuum and having yep. different kind of goals in a different context. Even though on the outside mm -hmm. it looks, I feel like if you're going off the same evidence base, it probably should look pretty similar. Yeah. Shouldn't look too mm -hmm. spectacularly different. Um, maybe that's where marketing might get in the way of, of evidence-based care. And like it, you want to um, appear as though you're highly different, but yeah. And um, you know, that's, that's a thing too, is sometimes it's not going to look different and you know, that's okay. If we want to stay true to the evidence and we can't worry about what others are thinking. And, and there's a, um, you've made a, a great post on some of your reflections from, I think, I believe it was from placements from your clinical, um, clinical placements during university, during studies. Mm -hmm. so, so curious to hear what, what's your experience been like uh, and what did you learn during that time with applying some of the knowledge and some of the, the readings that you've been doing to, to clients and to patients? Um, let's see. So I'll kind of reiterate and um, go over what some of my reflections were and how that affects my practice today. So uh, one of like, the first things I noticed during my clinical rotations was uh, how plan of care was kind of the same at certain places, especially what we have. Uh, we, in the U.S., we have something called PT Mills, which is just a factory that cranks out patients with high volume. Um, and a lot of them, they've received like the same plan of care, you know, three times a week for eight to 12 weeks. Um, and they very rarely kind of uh, deviated from that. 
And I didn't think every patient needed that. You know, some patients, they just need once a week or sometimes they just needed one session, just a little bit of patient education for managing their condition and they're fine. Or some patients did require that, you know, three times a week, 12 weeks, even 16 weeks, especially the post-op patients. So um, I, I saw that not everyone fit the same framework for a plan of care. Um, and now that I'm, I'm working on my own as an autonomous um, PT, um, you know, it's nice that I can decide the plan of care for the patients and see what's appropriate for them and have that discussion with them too. Because I think a big part of that is not just telling them you're going to come here for two to three times a week for so-and-so weeks, but rather making it a discussion where it's between the both of us. It's a shared decision. Like, here's what I think is, is good for you and what would work for, you know, you based on the situation you're telling me. We could do once a week um, and just meet together for the next four weeks and I'll just kind of help monitor you through this, this process and kind of guide you. Or if it's going to be more involved, then I'll give them my thoughts, you know, recommend three times a week, um, two to three times a week. Um, and let, and then, you know, I'll ask him, always ask him, like, what do you think about that? Does that work for you? Because I never want to just be just completely authoritative while I'm telling them what to do, um, but to make them feel like they also have a say in their own rehab. So that's that's kind of how that's um, affected my, how I deal with, uh, not just deal with my patient, how I um, face my patients and have those discussions about their plan of care. Yeah, and, and for the Australianists out there when talking about the context that you're working in, there's um, insurance-based work for PTs, my limited understanding, and that's generally what um, the, the, I guess the PT mills run through. And mm-hmm. now that you're an autonomous PT, you're kind of out of the insurance-based system or, or just so if we get something... Yes, yeah, still a uh, still slave to the insurance system. Um, it's just we don't have the the kind of quotas that you know PT mills might push, especially when it comes to billing certain things such as manual therapy. Like I, you know, I'm lucky at, at my clinic, we're not forced to bill certain units, and we're very um, we're a very active based clinic. So lots of therex uh, or therapeutic exercise, lots of therapeutic activities, um, lots of patient education. Um, and not feeling I, we have to do manual therapy in every single patient. Of course, you know we use it with some patients when it's indicated and when it's appropriate. Um, but that's not that's not forcing us. Um, in terms of dealing with insurance, yeah, we we're still limited by what insurance is going to give us. And sometimes the patient might only have four four sessions remaining for that year mm-hmm. in terms of what the insurance will allow. And that's another part of it too is letting patients know like, hey, because we're limited, here's how we're going to work with this. You know, if we only have 10, 10 visits, then here's how we're going to make this work. And um, that's a, that's a hard part. Sometimes it really throws a wrench in your, uh, your plans. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you're, you're respecting the person's choice and autonomy and the shared decision-making. It's not like you're uh, signing someone up for, for sessions. that's not really aligned with their goals, but it's perhaps more so a very real pressure to meet, KPIs or certain quotas, mm-hmm. which I feel is, yeah. is quite common. It's, and it's um, funny hearing that you also have similar struggles to what we're experiencing in some some areas in, in the other side of the world. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, unfortunately, you know, the whole rehab process isn't the only uh, complex problem that we have to deal with. There's a lot of constraints when it comes to someone's rehab, mm-hmm. such as insurance. Yeah. Yeah. I recall one of the other reflections you mentioned was in relation to to feedback from from other supervisors and obviously um, in speaking in general terms, what what were your thoughts there? Because I, I definitely can recall experiences uh, from my placement experiences where supervisors advice I would need to kind of contextualize it or um, be aware of some of the limitations or just apply a basic critical thinking framework and, and lens to their feedback alongside mm-hmm. my feedback, alongside any, anyone's feedback. Um, so I'm curious to hear how, how you responded and, and what you thought of um, during your experience right. in the field. So, yeah, as, as a student, um, I'm, yeah, sometimes I was, I was averse to, to feedback because I didn't find that, um, whatever that feedback was based on was 
was important or, or really mattered, for example, like a technique in, in manual therapy. Um, it's one thing to have technique that's just efficient and saves you energy and being, you know, putting a lot of effort versus like being so specific, like, am I really on C5 versus C6 or do I have to push in this direction or use your technique when really there's no universal technique anyways, or, or asking why I didn't do, you know, the rest of the C-spine. Um, so, and, and I kind of went over that my post is that I think, um, clinical reasoning without critical thinking is, is can really lead clinicians astray because you can go so deep down that rabbit hole of manual therapy of, of all these specific techniques, um, and waste, you know, a lot of time when it really doesn't make that much of a difference. If at all, I think you need to be, um, sufficient enough with, with manual therapy that your patient feels like that you're confident, right. Knowing what they're doing. Um, and not that you just look, learned how to do manual therapy over the weekend. So I, I think um, when it came to feedback regarding manual therapy, I kind of, you know, I don't want to disrespect my, my CIs or my, my supervisor at the time because I, I learned a lot from them. But sometimes I would just accept them like, okay, sure. Um, but I'm not going to take so much time to, to worry about feedback like that. I, you know, and I always kind of assess feedback um, independently. You know, I'm not going to just dismiss all the feedback just because I didn't agree with one feedback. I'd always like evaluate like, okay, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's valid. Or, um, or sometimes I just didn't think it was a uh, important feedback to, to consider. Um, so yeah, during that, during that whole year, we have in a PT school in, in the U S or physio school, we have a, a whole year of clinical rotations during, during our last year, during the third year. So I had a whole year of that. Um, and it's hard because as a student, you don't, you know, you don't want to talk back. Sometimes, you know, I would ask questions, but, um, you know, you kind of just have to go along with it. And that's, that's a hard about, part about being a student. You just got to learn to, you know, just listen, try to accept, you know, whatever you can. And, but important to, on your own, at least to figure out whether that is a valid criticism. Cause I think it's easy for, for students to think that they're not allowed to question whatever that their CI is telling them, especially because they're an authority figure and they have control over whether you pass or not. Yeah. Um, There's a <laughs> power imbalance already yeah. involved in that, in that relationship. And, and you can um, definitely see there's helpful sides and positives to learning a different approach. It's um, not kind of saying, or we don't want people to, to say that, you know, some advice is, is useless and, and should just dismiss it immediately. But it's, it's, um, it's more so we can still have the same questioning and critical thinking as we should for any kind of feedback. And maybe it's helpful to get different sources of, of right. feedback and supervision and not just rely on um, an in-house one or, or um, even just a single source for feedback. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a, a big part of what I try to do is always diversify my feedback and get different different thoughts, especially because sometimes feedback can be biased. Sometimes I can be biased myself and ask someone that doesn't agree with my biases, you know, what they think too. And I, and I think that was important for my own growth. And, you know, I don't know what I would do if it wasn't for the internet and be able to talk to clinicians around the world. But I was um, really lucky to be in the period I am now to learn from people all around the world. Sure. Yeah. And advice that you would offer to new grads going through clinical placement and they're perhaps noticing discrepancy even between what university is teaching and what clinicians how clinicians practice um what, what advice would you would you offer to still have the maybe a bit of preparation that it might it will likely be different and that's okay and what how can they respond to to seeing that or even receiving feedback yeah mm -hmm. so um you know we're you know we're all kind of taught to respect uh, our CIs. And, and I still kind of agree with that. Respect your CIs, um, but understand that, you know, they're not perfect. They learn a certain way, especially if they've been in one clinic for their entire career around the same people, they're going to be very similar to each other. And they probably may not have changed that much. Um, and just be, uh, be very prepared for dinosaurs. <laughs> In the in the industry that haven't changed their uh, their beliefs since they graduated, um, but yeah, I, I noticed a very big difference going from the the school setting to the actual clinical side. Um, 
and I, I, I expected that. So I would kind of, yeah, definitely recommend just like being ready for the unexpected, like be ready to see all kinds of ideas that you didn't come across in school. I think it, it's hard for me to, to know exactly because I've always just been always around like reading different things, you know, and I think that would help clinicians right now or students right now, just trying to diversify your material where you're getting stuff from. Cause some, fortunately they're probably not going to be listening to the podcast. And those are the ones that do need to listen to more uh, information besides what they're just um, hearing about in, in school, uh, because there's so much out there. And I, you know, I talk to classmates or I talk to uh, current students um, that I know and you know, I hear that, you know, their only source of information is PT school at this point. And to me, it's like, you're really limiting how much more you can learn and what else is out there. Um, and that's, I think, one of the better ways to, to prepare for your clinical rotation is trying to expose yourself to different ways of practicing um, different um, clinicians. Um, and that, I think that's going to prepare some more than just, um, whatever schools preparing them for. Um, so yeah, expose yourself to all the different thought camps in, in PT and in physio and rehab um, and explore the evidence too. That's the one thing too, is like, you know, if you're not, if you're not exploring social media, you know, that's understandable. It's not for everyone, but at least, you know, put yourself out there, read studies, you know, go on PubMed. Um, so try to, uh, yeah, I guess that's my, my advice is diversify where you're learning stuff from because you'll get a slap in the face if you go straight to uh, clinical rotations without having read anything outside of what you're learning in school. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think um, there's an assumption that all you need is, is school and to get the degree and then you're sweet, but there's mm -hmm. so much more to it. So like normalizing the process of we're going to be wrong in a few years because that's generally how evidence emerges and changes and we have to update our practice and um, what supervisors say will be different in a few years time. So keeping up to date and knowing that that's part of the, the journey of being a healthcare professional in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's a good point. It's like our, our CIs, they will be wrong at some point and that's, you know, that's okay. Um, just understand and don't understand that they may be wrong and, you know, that's not your place to correct them either this point you know just keep your um you know keep your tongue to yourself keep your uh, words to yourself and you know reflect on it and definitely i think it's important to evaluate it and try to evaluate with as little bias as you can i mean it's really impossible to move all bias but really try to remove your feelings from the equation and think about like yeah is that is that valid will this make will that if i follow that advice will it actually make me a better clinician you know i think that's that's important to think about or will it help improve my outcomes to my patients um so always try to evaluate their, uh, their feedback. Don't just, uh, and don't, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Don't uh, accept everything at face value. Yeah, absolutely. It's super helpful. Um, and so based on what you've come across online and also in person, what might you say at this stage are some of the, the challenges for, for clinicians in updating their practice and mm -hmm. the, my mind immediately goes to the constraints of systems that people work within. But what are your thoughts based on what you've seen so far? Absolutely. So um, definitely the, the constraints of the system is, is a major setback. Uh, now that I'm a practicing clinician, it's uh, I can definitely understand what some of those setbacks are. Right. Um, Cause as a student, I, I read a lot more than, than I'm actually reading now. Um, I mean, I, I've had lots of life uh, things going on. I just moved, um, this, this month and um, so this whole past month I've just been focusing on moving I haven't read a, a single study haven't read uh, any books and I've just been kind of uh, focusing on moving I haven't been on social media either some people might have noticed that I haven't like posted anything posted any story because usually I post stories pretty often too um, so I, I can see you know when when life events happen and just inertia takes control right you know it's hard to kind of get back into the groove that you were in before um, you know, after you graduate, you don't have, um, I think in school, you, you have that kind of mindset, you have that, uh, that, that vibe of just wanting to learn more, right? You're in a, in a process of learning and consuming. And once, once you graduate, 
uh, as a clinician, it's very easy to fall back into comfort and complacency. And you got to put in like real effort, especially if you're going from nothing and you want to be a more um, a practitioner who's still more up to date, updating their, uh, their practice. It takes a lot of effort to go from that, that standstill to rolling forward forward. Um, so in terms of big setbacks, I think just comfort, you know, complacency, um, maybe just feeling too tired at the end of the day. I know, I know that's definitely something I deal with is, uh, come back home, some of, some of my evening shifts and, uh, I just want to eat and fall asleep, you know? And then, um, so I, I think that's, that's a big part is finding the energy to, to do that and get into that. Um. So I think a good way around that also is just to find alternatives that are easier to to consume. So for example, when you're listening to a podcast during your commute, um, social media, I think social media is a great thing and a lot of people slam on it, but it makes, you know, learning certain things outside what you normally read very accessible. And if you use the right way, uh, social media can be a great way of, of learning. Um, so I think uh, clinicians who struggle to keep up with the evidence, keep up with reading studies, you know, I get it. You know, I, I definitely get it at this point in my life. And I think social media is a great way to, to introduce that. Just make sure you diversify who, who you're following and following people who practice critical thinking, um, who people who post evidence and, you know, cite their, cite their sources. Um, instead of just blindly following people who spout a bunch of stuff without citing a single thing. Um so yeah, I think uh, now as a, as a practicing clinician, I can definitely say and understand where other clinicians are coming from when they haven't updated their practice. You know, I definitely want to say that I'm never going to, I definitely want to say I'm not going to go there fully and just accept that I'm not going to grow anymore. Um, so it does take that effort of like wanting to be a better clinician. And you know that's, that's a cognitive effort at the end of the day is patients, uh, clinicians need to find that within themselves to want to do something about it and want to update their practice. Because mm. um, if you don't get past that step, then, you know, no one's going to read studies on their own or try to learn something on their own. Yeah. There's a um, very real points in terms of life getting in the way and can respect stresses, major events, moving house, mortgages, relationships, all these things getting in the way of it's a bit different to student life. Um, mm -hmm. And so finding ways that can make the learning process more efficient. And I think social media is one of the best ways to connect with people and to find sources and to have the, the content more digestible and Absolutely. Uh, perhaps mm -hmm. even contextualized. And it's great to see some of the, the thinking and the, the critical thinking discussions and, and debates and, um, where people were wrong and, and how people change and how people interpret the the same evidence base. And I think that's right. like it's a vicarious learning. It's like we're um, watching how others interpret the research and then stealing how they interpret it for future yeah. reference, right? Yeah, totally. Like, I actually, I, it's fine. Like you mentioned debates. I love debates. You know, I know a lot of people complain that, like, oh, debates, they don't, they don't get anything done. No one, uh, no one changes their mind. But I, I've changed my mind reading lots of debates. Um, mainly as someone just observing and, and reading um and i think that provides a, a lot of value people like debates really give a good idea for um how people think you know when, when you see two people debate you really see and get to analyze their, their thought process and see how they came to their conclusions obviously a good debate well maybe not not all debates will but um, that, that there are great ways to learn about a topic and great ways to learn the breadth of a topic. Because if you have two people arguing against each other, they're going to present as much of their sides as you can. And now if you read both sides, you get a good glimpse of, you know, kind of the breadth of evidence regarding that topic. So I think debates are a great way to learn. Yeah, definitely to, to get uh, different sides of the argument because it's so easy to just go to um, simplistic reductionist, black or white answers. Yep could see maybe um a, a side or, or a different perspective that challenges your bias yeah and the evidence mm -hmm. base around it as well exactly with, with social media what obviously the algorithms are probably not the most helpful for seeing all different sides and different perspectives <laughs> and um, definitely 
live in a social media bubble myself. But for for those who are a little bit hesitant to use social media, or uh, maybe they've had um, negative experiences, but they're they're curious to see how um, it can help this process, what what might be the advice that you would give for for new grads in regards to social media? What are the the main kind of benefits that you've seen? Um, well, social media it has has um, a great place to get involved with a community. Um, and it, it can take some guts. I, it, it can take some courage to kind of make an account and start being involved. Um, but I highly recommend it. And I, I think I owe a lot of my own growth because I've always been someone who's been involved in discussions. I really like getting into discussions and not just, you know, reading from the sidelines. I think it's good. I think a good step is to start reading from the sidelines. Um, and then like a next step is to take that step forward and put in, put out your own thoughts to the world. And, and just expect that someone's going to disagree with you too. You know, you're not going to last long on the internet without uh, expecting some someone to disagree with you. No matter how nonsensical it is, it's it's going to happen. And sometimes, a lot of the time, it will be sensical. A lot of times, it will be good feedback. I've been proven wrong more often than I've than I've been right on the internet. And I think, uh, I, I'm, I, you know, that's not something that I'm ashamed about either. I'm always happy to admit when I'm wrong and. I think that uh, putting myself out there and not being afraid to be wrong has led me to a lot more growth than if I just uh, was too afraid to be wrong and didn't put myself out there and didn't get myself challenged. Um, and that's something that I pride myself on is that I'm not afraid to, to be wrong on the internet um, as long as uh, as long as someone provides a good argument that I'm wrong. I'm not going to just accept someone being wrong just because someone told me, but present a good argument and I'll consider it. You know? So I think being open to being wrong is is the first step and once you kind of get over that hump then it becomes easier i think people who haven't put their thoughts out there who haven't engaged the community um it can be probably terrifying you know i still i still kind of get that little um almost like weird feeling in my stomach when i you know when i get really involved in, in some kind of discussion i really put myself out there or put out like hot take and i see like a notification someone replied you know, um, so it's like, it's, it still happens to me too, but, uh, it's, it's easier for me to just press enter and, and put in my comment of disagreement or, or calling something out, you know, um, and, and it takes practice. So I'd say, you know, start small, you know, make an account, um, follow different accounts. I mean, that, that's, that's the easier part, uh, you know, actually posting comments. It's, that's hard. And then making posts and putting your, your ideas out there. Definitely. It's, um, that's hard too. Um, but I would say, you know, don't be too hard on yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Don't let um, don't let disagreements or uh, or being wrong um, get to your head either. Um, and just see it as a way to to grow. You know, remember that um, that's that's really how you how you grow, and you'll grow so much more that way than just keeping to yourself and not putting your ideas out there, uh, not being involved with those communities. Yeah, yeah, it's a a way to connect with other clinicians in this space who share similar values and that also um, allows you to uh, be open to feedback and that can be mm -hmm. uh, critical as well so it helps you learn how to uh, manage that as well and that's probably going to happen in clinical practice as yeah. well I'd say mm -hmm. um, yeah so, so so I say there's a lot of a lot of uh, positives to to draw upon and it's probably the connection with the community as you said um as first and foremost to connect on a mm -hmm. deeper level rather than um just staying on the surface level not that there's anything wrong with yeah being on and and following some awesome people and and great useful content and reading into the evidence as well that's also an option mm -hmm. absolutely and you know you get what you put into it too and as long as you're okay with not getting much out of it then you know, go ahead and keep reading from the sidelines. But I can uh, definitely say that if you put yourself out there, you will, you know, you'll grow so much more, and you'll be you'll uh, you'll be better for that. Yeah, and with your comments and what you've seen um, in the the interwebs, what are some of the the common misunderstandings, misconceptions in regards to having an evidence based approach? I think a lot of people think it's it can be very rigid, um, where everything we do has to be evidence based, um, and everything that we do has to have some kind of citation, 
or has to have an RCT or a systematic review or manual analysis behind it. Um, but the case is going to be that most of the time, most of the things we do aren't, aren't isn't going to be that way. It's a lot of it just making informed decisions um, with a single thing. You know, I don't have a uh, systematic review to choose one exercise over the other. Well, sometimes you do. Um, and generally I say there's, there's no one best exercise. Um, but, you know, with a single patient, I might choose one exercise, but another patient, I might end up choosing the other exercise that I didn't use for that patient. And that's, you know, you're not going to have systematic reviews for that. You're not going to have uh, RCTs for that. Um, but, you know, that's just a, a tiny part of things that are outside of what evidence exists. So, you know, evidence-informed practice still involves a lot of not evidence-based things or just things that evidence doesn't exist for. Um, so evidence, being evidence-based or being science-based doesn't just mean you, you only run off of citations, but that's what should be your guide. That's what should be your foundation. And then anything outside of that, you have to think whether, um, you think a little more critically for things outside, outside the, the evidence. Um, so yeah, I'd say common misconception is that rigidity, um, and same thing with uh, kind of like the evidence-based uh, hierarchy or the evidence pyramid, right? Uh, it's also not an absolute ranking. Um, you know, SRIs and MAs, they're also going to be highly dependent on what studies they include, right? Um, RCTs also give me limited in stuff, and sometimes you need observational studies to make any kind of conclusion, especially when it comes to epidemiology. You know, you have no choice but to look to the observational studies. Um, so... I feel that uh, just there's this paint, very broad paintbrush of evidence-based clinicians being rigid in their thinking, but it actually takes a lot of flexibility in thinking to be an evidence-based practitioner because you have to think from so many different angles, um, but with evidence as your foundation, with, with science as your foundation. Yes, it's answering the how do we know question and then having some principles of plausibility, knowing the limitations mm -hmm. of our own experience and as well as, as you mentioned, some of the limitations of, of research out there. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that allows a bit of humility to see what would be most helpful for a particular individual in front of you. And it, just, right. so it helps to have that, that framework of, of research as the foundation or the starting point to then filter um, like the, the evidence-based funnel by Eric Meyer is the yeah. common mm -hmm. thing that I use. And it's so helpful to, to see that framework, that visual representation and helps to see, and it encapsulates that there's still, we're still valuing experience and we're still valuing a person's preferences. And it's not like we need an RCT for every single thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's precisely it. And, and I think, um, yeah, I wish uh, more clinicians could see that, that, that funnel. And I wish we were, we were taught that in school. Um, which I don't think we're too far from, from learning about in school. Um, and that's something that I could tell clinicians now um, who you know, want to be better is to learn about that funnel, that evidence, uh, the evidence funnel, evidence based um, instead of that stool analogy that, that's commonly used, right? Uh, if they could learn the funnel analogy, it definitely, I think, represents what evidence-based medicine is about. And it's not just, you know, throwing out uh, experience, throwing out patient preferences, but using um, yeah the evidence as the foundation and then going from there, rather than just picking and choosing. Well, this patient, you know, I'm just going to use my experience and what they want to do, or you know, it doesn't matter what what the evidence says because as long as I have one of the one of the three pillars, that's evidence based medicine. But that's that's also not what it is either. Yes, it's, it's a, learning a little bit more about the the philosophical lens and the the framework itself. Because um, it's very easy to misrepresent an evidence-based approach, um, and for for new grads and even people in their final years of, of university, there's sometimes, as, you, as you've touched on, there there may be a discrepancy between what is um, the most up-to-date consensus on certain topics and what university teaches, and we've already discussed a little bit about how even in clinical practice itself, clinicians from all ages, both senior and junior might also be practicing a kind of non-guideline based care. So mm -hmm. what might be some helpful 
advice um, and what, what would also be helpful for, for other clinicians to provide for new grads based on what you've seen um, to help clinicians, newer clinicians feel a bit more confident amongst the, the uncertainty? Mm -hmm. Yeah, learning how to live with uncertainty, that's, uh, that's something that we'll have to accept as clinicians for, for the rest of our lives. Because if you want the certainty, um, you won't be in this profession. But also just like learning to understand that that's, yeah, a big part of our profession is dealing with uncertainty. It's not just us that has to deal with it. It's many times our patients that have to deal with it and learning how to manage their uncertainty too. is It's, it's huge. Um, so, uh, sorry, could you repeat that question one more time? Yeah. What, I got sidetracked on that. Of course, what would be helpful, like strategies, um, mm -hmm. solutions, things to help new grads um, Jason Civil now used crossing the chasm from um, back in the Soma Simple forum days in the kind of OG pain science world where it described like having that existential crisis that, you know, what university has taught us isn't everything and there's so much uncertainty out there and um, even, you know, there is no panacea and even exercise isn't the, the best medicine for everyone and um yeah, dealing with that, going on through that to the other side where we're a little bit uh, more skilled and experienced and okay with not knowing the quote-unquote black or white right answer. Right. Um, yeah, man, that existential crisis, that was my first post uh, on Instagram is uh, talking about the existential crisis that you, know, you go through as, as a clinician when you realize um, just how much of, that you don't know and just how uncertain, uh, how much uncertainty there is in our profession. Um, so you can always go back to, to my first post and, and read about uh, how I kind of tackled that. Um, but a big part of it is like one, getting in, like involved with the community. You know, there's, there's so many different communities out there um, to be involved with, um, you know, or even just kind of getting involved in your own community, creating your own community, um, and which is something I, I tried tried to do through my own platform too, is create a community of people who want to think a little bit more critically. Um, but you know, all these things kind of make it easy to make that transition um, of facing that uncertainty, facing um, you know the imposter syndrome as well, and feeling like you know you don't belong. Um, yeah, a big part of uh, overcoming that kind of crisis for me is um you know not not letting that just get to me also it's, it's so easy to just want to kind of give up at that point i think um and definitely being around like very positive people you know i can kind of be a, like a negative person just because i'm a very critical person but find people who are positive about wanting to be better clinicians i think it's important because uh, a lot of clinicians out there, it's they they're just very set on their ways and and that's not I'm not saying that they're they're not positive, but finding someone who has that energy, I, I think is, is what I'm trying to say. Is find people who have that energy to to want to be better, um, and finding those those communities too. Um, yeah, there's, there's huge value in in that the it's it's okay to be skeptical and critical and question things, and then at the same time we can. Um, have that energy and that drive and that passion to keep moving forward and keep growing and um, yeah, have that support that we all need during this time because mm -hmm. it can feel at times overwhelming or isolating knowing that we may be practicing in a different way to all our colleagues or we don't have the resources or we weren't taught how to deal with someone's uncertainty. Yeah. Um, and I, I also just recommend like reading books too. Like that's where you get a lot of uh, information and learning how to deal with these things, but critical thinking books too. I think that's a great way to kind of give yourself a very solid foundation. So you, you know how to move forward from, from anything, from any kind of crisis in terms of uh, epistemological crisis, like crisis involving information and knowledge, you know, when you realize that everything you know is, has been wrong. Um, you can always go back to uh Critical thinking. That's awesome. And any particular books that come to mind, or there are posts as well. I think we can. Um, I you know I'm a big fan of Carl Sagan. Uh, so I can always recommend Carl Sagan's book. Um, uh, science is um, what's it called? Uh, Demon Hot the World. Yeah, Demon Hot the World. 
um, that's, you know, probably one of my favorite books and what got me really into critical thinking. So oh, I owe a lot to, to him and uh, I always strive to keep spreading uh, Carl's good word of critical thinking. That's awesome. There's, um, there's so much work as well to, to debunk some of the misinformation online and, and even amongst uh, communities when looking at the, the social cultural beliefs around pain. So for, for the public as well as for, for even new grads, how might we be able to inoculate or um, pre- prevent um, the, the misinformation from happening in the, in the first place? Or how can we, how can we yeah, combat the outdated info about pain and injuries? Mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah, that's that's always hard to do because it's an uphill battle. Because misinformation will always be easier to sell than than actual information. Um, and I, I think you know, kind of touching back on what I was just saying, critical thinking is going to be a huge part of that. Uh, and getting people like excited to be um, excited to to do something like critical thinking, excited to think a little bit more deeply on topics and and question things. Um, because once you start realizing, uh, once you start learning some principles of critical thinking, you start realizing how many holes there are in a lot of misinformation uh, posts and a lot of patterns that you'll see. There's so many different patterns. You almost have like a formula for making misinformation and spreading it really fast. So, you know, that's something that I try to do is, is teach critical thinking and not just teach it, but also make it a little bit more exciting or uh, engaging too and get other people to be engaged. Um, so I like to not just, you know, put my own content out there. I like to make people put up put themselves out there. I'll, you know, I'll ask questions on my stories and, you know, get lots of feedback from, from that. Sometimes people are more willing to send you a DM than put, put a comment publicly. Um, so, you know, those things I think are good ways to, to get people engaged and just asking questions, uh, asking questions that are engaging questions um, that will make people think uh, about what they thought they knew. Um, and also trying to make it more okay to, to be wrong. Um, you know, I think trying, I think we sometimes live in a, a fragile culture where people don't want to be wrong or that's wrong to prove someone wrong to, you know, one, like a famous book by, um, uh, you know, how to win friends. Um, I th- think, you know, that book, right. Yeah. Dale um, Carnegie or something. Yeah. Dale, Dale Carnegie. That's right. Yeah. Like, you know, one of his big things is you should never correct someone. And at that time, you know, I think that's something I needed because I was always constantly correcting people when I was a kid growing up and I just learned to back off. But now I'm kind of like learning how to, you know, manage that, you know, when, when to correct someone versus when not to. Um, but a big part of that book was saying like, you know, just people have egos, don't, don't bother trying to break it. And, and to me, I, I don't really like that at this point. I, I think we should try to encourage, um, you know, encourage going against your own ego and going against your own biases um, and not treat that like such a bad thing and not kind of have the, have this expectation that people are, are that weak where, you know, they can't take a little bit of feedback or a little bit of questioning. And, you know, that'd be, sometimes that is, that is the case, but at least trying to change that narrative that that's such a bad thing, you know, you should try making it more okay to have disagreements or to ha- have feedback or have questioning. Um, so I think a lot of these things will, well, hopefully contribute to kind of inoculating new grads and, and the general public is by, you know, trying to make these small changes in our culture of calling out BS. Like, you know, that's the big thing too, is calling out BS has seen like a bad thing more than the BS itself. So it's, you know, uh, Jacob uh, Templer and I had a, had a post on that too. Uh, the whole culture of calling people out is just so stigmatized. And like, why is that stigmatized? Not the, not the BS, right? So that's something that I think we need to change too, is making it more okay to, to call clinicians and see that as a good thing, you know, see that as a positive light, not just something that's, that's negative. Um, we're, you know, we're trying to, you know, help people think a little more critically and steer them towards better information and, you know, debunk misinformation. It's, it's not easy. And I think that starts with a, with a cultural shift too, cultural slash social shift and making things like that more okay. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting in other industries how it's seen as a lot more normal. I was talking to a, a client who's in IT, and there's mm-hmm. if you 
have something wrong, like you'll find out because the code doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> but in like healthcare, it's like, it's a bit different and it's like almost taboo to say that, Hey, there might be some other reasons for this working. And, um, and I feel like there's some nuances that I'm still learning about like steel manning and not making about the person and right. And it, framing it in a way that it's about the behavior or the action. And here are some alternatives rather than leaving them in the dark. And, um, but yeah, I, I definitely see that there's almost now um, anti-critical thinking or anti-science, anti-evidence-based mm-hmm. practice that's slowly emerging that I, um, yeah, I feel a little bit um, worried about to say the yeah. least. So um, mm-hmm. having people like you and having some posts and having some, some tools like the, the calling out the fallacies or calling out the, um, the illogical kind of thinking processes that is nothing to do personally with someone. It's, it's more, Hey, there's different ways of doing it. And this is why this is the thought process behind why this other approach is better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, definitely, we have to learn how to communicate our, our disagreements as well, um, but also learn that it's not about attacking people, it's about attacking ideas and letting people know that, hey, like, I'm not trying to attack you too. But also, we ourselves have to understand that whenever someone agree- disagrees with us, even if they are attacking us, try to not see it as a personal attack too. So that's something that, that I, I need to do too, is um, where I try to practice is when people do disagree with me and realize that it's not me, that's a problem, just my idea. My idea is not me. And I think that's a big thing is a lot of people connect their ideas and their beliefs to them as a person. And that's that's dangerous too, is when you really make your ideas your identity. So try to detach your, your ideas from your identity. It's a good place to start as well. Yeah, makes it so much easier to then update as those beliefs and uh, ideas change with time mm-hmm. and with new evidence, new evidence and um, new things that you learn. Mate, Absolutely. That was awesome. I really love the deep dive into critical thinking and it's, and yeah, you're one of the more inspiring like pages that I'm still following and highly recommend. So for the listeners who, who don't know who you are, cause um, mm-hmm. I feel like you don't have enough followers, man. You, you deserve so much more. <laughs> Where can people find you and um, mm-hmm. yeah, any, any projects or any shout outs? Yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram at physio.thinker. I have Twitter. I'm not sure my Twitter handle is. I think it's Cooney Nish. Um, and I have Facebook. I, I don't really use Facebook that much. I don't think most people use it that much right now. Um, but yeah, Instagram is definitely where I'm the most active at. So you can follow me there. Follow me for content there. I don't post that often. So that's another thing I'm working on is, is being more consistent with my posts. Um in terms of things that have going on, um, I, I do have some book ideas that I want to get involved with, but it's probably not going to happen for for a few years. Um, but keep on the lookout for for that. Yeah, Kane, mate, that's awesome, Cooney. Really appreciate your your insights and um, your inspiration, and keep up the great work. And um, yeah, keen to see future author perhaps in the making happening soon. But yeah, we need more people like you in healthcare. So thank you for everything you do. And until next time. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel.